we're looking at John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. And, like, just as a reminder, like, this is a really a, there's a larger section um, occurring within John's gospel. It started in John 13. It continues in John 14 and 15 and 16. But these, this is really a long dinner time or post-dinner time conversation that Jesus has with his disciples during the Last Supper. This is the last night that Jesus was alive. And so uh, everything that he is saying, he is really tending to his closest friends. His public ministry is over. His, his real private, friend-focused disciple ministry is, is also essentially wrapping up. He's helping them understand what is about to happen. And, and here's truly the, the honest case, and I'm going to risk overstating uh, the situation. Everything the disciples thought about following Jesus is being thrown out the window. Their entire conception of the way of Jesus is being readjusted. So let's give our careful attention to John 14 to see how Jesus is doing this, but also how this challenges our own conceptions of following Jesus as well. John 14, verses 1 through 14, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How, do you, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to Christ. Well, let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word that you have given us. Your word that you have given us to help us know you to help us follow you, to help us grow in our love of you and, and our neighbor in your work in this world. In Christ's name I pray, amen. As you begin to think about this passage, this passage actually speaks to two very specific objections and challenges that many have within this world about the Christian faith. On one hand, one of these objections that we can really describe as pluralism, it arises from a plur pluralist, pluralist, 
mindset, that where pluralists object to Christianity by saying something along the lines of that I cannot believe that there's only one way to know God. Certainly, other religions are legitimate and possible as well. Well, and the challenge is actually rather clear to spend some time with this very briefly. Because Jesus' teaching is remarkably deep and clear. He is clearly saying that he is the way to know and the way to relate to God. His disciples actually hear this, and later on you'll find this in Acts, that the disciples actually say this exact same thing. They'll say this, and this is in Acts, that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, the thing is, while we live in a pluralist culture, the reality is so did these disciples. Jesus ministered at a very pluralist time. While he is ministering and teaching in Israel, this is also in the context of the Roman Empire. Where the Roman Empire, that entire, that entire empire sets the backdrop to Jesus' ministry in the entire New Testament. And what Romans did is that they worshipped many gods, where every single time they would conquer a new city, a new territory, a new nation, they would add those deities, those gods of those countries to their own pantheon, the Roman pantheon. So, for example, in Athens, the god of Athens, there would be Athena. Um, that, is, that god would now be added to the Roman pantheon. But their only condition within this Roman pantheon is that everyone had to worship Caesar as well. Because the Caesar, Caesar, the Roman Empire, was the glue that held Rome together. Christians, however, refused. And so as we just highlight this, what I'm, one of the wonderful good things about Scripture is that Scripture is actually understanding the challenges that we face within our pluralist culture. And so Tim Keller observes that there are certain assumptions behind this pluralism. That skeptics believe that any exclusive claim to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But that objection in and of itself is its own religious belief. Because it assumes that God is unknowable or that God is loving but not wrathful. That God is an impersonal force and not a person who has revealed himself in scripture and through the man of Jesus of Christ. So this is really the first objection that our passage directly speaks to. The second objection is less so much of an intellectual one, although it is, but it's also an experiential one. And I'll use it and frame it this way, because this second objection really was clearly described for us in 2014 when an influential writer caused a stir by publishing a piece on his own blog. It was a brief essay, and it was entitled, I Don't got Connect with God Anymore, So I Don't Go to Church. Why don't I go to worship? And so that he pointed out that he feels closer to God when he goes on a hike with his friends and has some little wafers and Coca-Cola, and he celebrates communion that way. And so in, in one level, what the writer was also highlighting was that there were some cer certain things like personality differences or learning differences that would occur. So, for example, that if you're an introvert, you may not like the passing of the peace. Perhaps that's just your experience. Some others uh, may be wired to always be going and on the, in, in motion. But then you don't like pauses for reflection and contemplation. But that's actually not what the writer was saying. Because what he was saying is that he doesn't connect with God through the worship together with God's people. 
But there's something that we need to understand about worship. Because in, in our worship, and even within our church, not just our church, but global church, that it is about God and his story that is greater than our own lives. That, and the reality is that we are being shaped and formed into something. And the question is, whom or what are we being formed at, into? Whom are we becoming? Whom, what are we being formed into? And if we look at the way of Jesus, there's this remarkable promise that when we look at Jesus, that we will see, a, and we follow Jesus together, that we'll see a people that, who are being formed by word and spirit, embodying love and joy and peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, and much more. Right? So you see that allusion to Galatians 5.22. But as you think about this, the pluralist intellectual objection and this experiential objection, which one of these stories do you relate to? Which one of these objections have you heard the most? And this passage speaks to both of these realities, both of these challenges, I should say. In our, in our passage, Jesus says that not only is he the way, the truth, and the life, he also says this, that if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. That is a remarkable and beautiful statement. And sadly, for many people who have been in, in any, many churches, that is not their experiences. Experience. They don't see Jesus being ministered to them from the people of God. And so sometimes, but not always, but when people come to me and share honest thoughts with me about saying, like, I, I'm not connecting with God right now uh, through church, what I also tend to find is I find pain behind that statement. And that pain that often will lead to a, an objection against following Jesus. And, and the reality is this passage connects to that pain. This passage speaks to these deep, painful moments. And how is that? How does that happen? So Andreas Kossenberger, he writes this in his commentary on John. Reading this chapter requires a certain degree of historical empathy and imagination. With the disciples' very existence on the line, many would have been tempted to second-guess their decision to follow Jesus in the first place. It seems as it is Jesus' entire mission and the disciples alongside his had begun to unravel. This is a time of supreme testing and loyalty. Think about some of the things that we read about last week or were alluded to. Because the disciples learned, just learned, this is chapter 13, verse 21, that one of their own was going to betray Jesus. And they also discovered who that was. That was Judas Iscariot as he has left their, their number at this time. Peter also learned that he was going to deny Jesus. And when Peter said, no, I'm willing to die for you, Jesus said, no, you're going to deny me three times. That's verse 38. But then even Jesus told his disciples that he was going someplace that these, these disciples could not follow. So their entire conception is being challenged. They are troubled. They're not just, being bo- they're not just bothered. They are deeply troubled. And so as we begin to think more deeply and focused on this passage, let's think about that. Because the overlap of both of these stories of pluralism, 
and this experiential dynamic of how one relates to Jesus. The overlap of these two stories is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is actually encouraging the disciples with himself, and he's, even while he is going away, he's saying, essentially, look to me, look to the Father, look to the Father, and you'll see me. So as you, like, to think about this almost in an outline sense, and this is, again, brief for both of these. You have the destination and the directions. And so when Jesus ministers to his disciples as they're troubled, he says, do not be troubled. And now the Greek tense, the verb tense here implies this, do not be worrying. Jesus has recognized that they're not just, like, troubled. They're, it, it's, a, it's a current theme that they are going through. And you will can see this in the new year when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, do, like, he's re, he says this again. Jesus is reassuring them. And the fundamental goal of these immediate verses is actually to prepare these disciples for his departure. Because he is going away to the Father. And he's going to the Father for their benefit. He, this is what he says. I'm, I'm going to my Father's house to prepare a place for you. And I'll be back and you know where I'm going. And see here in this passage, he's talking about the Father's presence. And, and in his father's house, there are many rooms. So, so in this, we, we learn that in his father's presence, there is room, there is space, not only for these immediate 12 disciples, but for every disciple of Jesus Christ. There is more than enough room for all of Jesus' disciples who span across space, history, and time. And so within the context of John's entire gospel... Commentator D.A. Carson writes this, that it is in the going itself uh, via Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection that Jesus prepares the place for John, for Jesus' disciples. And see, Jesus' destination is life with the Father, and that place is now prepared for you because he died upon the cross and he defeated death through his resurrection. You have this place with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's what Jesus is saying, that I'm going back, I'm going to the Father, and there's a place for you there. That is meant to be deeply reassuring to any one of Jesus' disciples. And so perhaps you're here this morning, and you're wondering is if following Jesus is even worth it. And Jesus even says, count the cost, because there's a cost to following Jesus. But as you think about the cost of following Jesus, there is an even greater reward that awaits you. His death secured that life for you. His resurrection secured it. And it's not just like life. It's a good life. It's an abundant life. And this is where we see Jesus going. How can we have this life? This is actually the question that the disciples ask. And like Thomas is like, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the destination. How do we get there? And so this is when we think about the, the directions. And the directions for our destination is quite clearly where Jesus says that I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus answers the questions for these directions with himself. At the center of our faith, this is huge, we cannot miss this. At the center of our faith is not a to-do list. 
It is not an instruction manual. It is not a morality to be followed. At the center of our faith is a person named Jesus. And how he explains this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, this is deep. This is incredibly clear, but it's very deep. Again, what the one commentator said, it's hard to exhaust what Jesus is getting at here. And so let's consider each one of these words, the way, the truth, and the life for a moment. So when we talk about the way, we see the early church reflecting on this Jesus-centered faith many times. Because in the early church, the church was simply known as followers of the way. And you, and you look at the book of Acts, you see this reference to followers of the way six times. And also, if you look at the book of Acts, if you look for Christian, you only see it twice. You only see, excuse me, not Christ. You see Christ a lot, by the way. I'm talking about Christian, which means little Christ. There we go. Christian is only mentioned twice in the book of Acts. It first occurs in, in the uh, church in Antioch, and then also later when um, Paul is, is meeting a Roman uh, leader. But then it also pops up in 1 Peter. But the point that I'm making is that the early church reflected and bore witness to this reality that we are centered around Jesus by actually referring to themselves as followers of the way. That's how the early church saw themselves. But in the Greek word for way simply means road, path, or even way of life. And so everything about Jesus, his person, his teaching, his life, his deeds, his death, his resurrection, all, everything about Jesus shows us the way to the truth of this living God. Because what we cannot do is we cannot compartmentalize Jesus. We cannot separate the person of Jesus from the work of Jesus. We cannot separate his teaching from his rescue. Jesus is saying that he is the way to the Father and that he is our way of life. And so this is deeply relevant. The key to life with God is Jesus. The key to our growing, the key to our changing, the key to our inner and outer transformation is Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus is getting at. But what we do within our culture, and you know this, is that we will follow whatever self-help fad that captures our eye will be captivated by influencers, celebrities, or a new personality that pops up. But what Jesus is saying is that specifically specifically by being with him and having a relationship with him, we will have life with God, but also become more and more like him. That's what Jesus is saying here. But the reality is, is that if Jesus is the way, it just naturally follows that he is the truth and the life. So let's think about the truth. And this is not the first time the Apostle John mentions that Jesus is the truth. John immediately points this out for us in his introduction to his gospel. The, that We find this in John 1 verse 14, that the word is full of grace and truth. And he's talking about Jesus there. And so truth within this specific passage here in John 14, but even throughout all of John's gospel, truth is not just an idea. It's not a concept, but a person. Jesus is the truth. And so Jesus' reality, his historicity, his depth, give us this solid assurance that he, his way is the true way. It is the truth. 
And see, Jesus is the truth because he is the reliable one. He is the one who said who, that he is who he says he is. And he does what he says he will do. But it's more than that. If you want a true, accurate picture of who God is, look at Jesus. Jesus truly reveals God to us. And so the writer of Hebrew picks up that beautiful idea that Jesus reveals God to us. And Hebrews runs with it. Because what the writer of Hebrews does, and this is really an outline, is that Jesus is greater than the, than the angels. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the priests. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. And everything in Scripture is actually about him. And it's for this reason that Jesus, as Jesus is the truth, Jesus is also the life that is from God. Again, John writes with crystal clarity about this. And this is in John's introduction. In him, in the word, in Jesus, was life. And that life, the life, was the light of man. And and just to drive the point home even further, in John 10.10, that's the passage where Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd, we find this, that I have come so that they would have life and have it abundantly. See, this is where Jesus comes and says that I am the life. Jesus is the life. Everything in in Jesus' life, his ministry, his teaching, his entire mission in life was to give you this abundant life where you thrive, where you flourish. And actually, perhaps this is one of the biggest challenges in our everyday lives to us. Because what we do is that we prioritize this life above all other lives. We prioritize this life where we'll spend a fortune on health and wellness and fitness. And to be clear, this is valuable for sure. Paul says this, that bodily training is of value. But we're, and while we're called to take care of and steward our bodies, but this life is not our only life. And so, like, I, I saw this, and this is perhaps a silly example, but it'll help us get at what I'm describing. I'm walking through the King of Prussia Mall this week, and I see the Peloton store. And their window has the following words. When your workout is a joy, it is a joy to work out. And there's a lot of truth to that. But what is the ultimate source of our joy? What is the ultimate source of our joy? Jesus is the one who laid down his life and died so that you would have this abundant life that he's promising us. Jesus is the source of our life. He gives you the Holy Spirit. That's where we're going in a couple weeks. But he gives you the Holy Spirit who is your helper. He is your advocate so that you can experience this life and this joy today in this life. So Jesus is our life. Pull this together. It's not just, Jesus is not just our life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So just to pull this all together and really wrap this up, the reality is that Jesus is the directions to our destinations. Jesus shows us the way to every longing of our heart. Jesus is, but what that also means is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that we desire. And so, once again, Frederick Bruner, again, I said this last week, I quote him every week, but this was his best quote. 
Lee writes this, that Jesus is in person all three, the way, the truth, and the life. They are not abstractions. They are a person. In Jesus, we have everything we need to make sense of and to give motivation for and to truly have a life worth living. Isn't that amazing? That in Jesus, we have a life worth living. And that is actually the challenge of this passage to our larger culture. That Jesus says that following me, you will have a life worth living. Because, and this is, this is so beautiful. Because when Jesus is actually at the center of our faith, when Jesus is at the center of our church and and all our relationships, when we are known as followers of the way, here's the reality. Jesus does not tell us how to, to live or earn salvation. Because what Jesus does is that Jesus comes to forgive and to save us through his life and death in our own place. That God's grace does not come to us so that we can be better people and morally outperform others. No. But God's grace comes to those who admit their failure to perform and acknowledge their own need for a Savior. See, friends, this is the grace of God that he has given us, that he has revealed to us in his son, Jesus Christ. That is through Jesus we can have life with God, and that is the absolute statement. Of, the, of, of Christ's teaching, that we have life with God in and through Jesus, and through him there is no other way, that we can have a life worth living. In fact, we can have a life worth admiring. We can have a life worth emulating and celebrating when we follow Jesus Christ, and it's because we center on Jesus Christ, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray.